Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 71 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 71, we are going to continue a trend that we've done. Well, not trend, a pattern. I guess that we did two of the last three shows and talking about uh, sort of worst quizzing things, a sort of a critical self-examination of things in quizzing. But we've already covered in two episodes the uh, rules that uh, Scott and I took umbrage with or with which we took umbrage, but now we're going to be moving on into an examination of quizzing practices itself, things that we do in quizzing that uh, that some level of umbrage taking, uh, either Scott or I, or more likely in most of these cases, both of us feel is appropriate. And of course, we want to caveat all of this with these are just Scott's opinions and my opinions, and we could be wrong. And of course, we only are going to criticize uh, the ones we love. So we're going to throw people under the bus and burn the bus um, because we love people. So that's the plan. But before we get into that, a couple of things. We have a, an announcement and a listener question. So the first thing, the announcement is uh, there is a game day coming up. So this because of all of our, you know, antivirus measures where people are kind of in lockdown and can't really communicate. Well, we can communicate with each other. We can't in-person meet with uh, each other. There is going to be a game day coming up this Saturday, uh, the 8th of August, 2020. It's going to start at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern time or 4 p.m. Uh, Pacific time zone if you happen to live in the best time zone. Uh, which I do, but Scott doesn't anymore. So I feel sad for him. Um, he's he lives in a good time zone, but it's just not the best time zone. Uh, but on the game day, uh, starting at 7 p.m. Eastern, there's going to be Jackbox games and more. This is going to be led by Alan McPherson and Zachary Tinker, who are both part of the CQLT. So it'll be a great opportunity for folks to hang out with them and get to know them a little bit better. The details are still to be finalized, but they are going to be finalized on Slack. So you definitely want to be popping into Slack and learning about how that goes. You can get an invitation to that by going to pnwquizzing.org slash Slack, and it'll redirect you over to the Bible Quizzing Slack forum, and it'll give you an invitation to join, and you'll be all set and ready to go. All right, so with that said, let's move on to our listener question. Our listener question is as follows. Tr Hello, a true rookie here. This past quiz year was my first ever, so I still have many things to learn. And wow, what a wonderful, wonderful year to, to be, have your first uh, year uh, be where, you know, the what a good third to a half of it uh, ends up uh, having to get converted into virtual and all the chaos that ensued therein. But anyway, the question is as follows. Is it really necessary to have a special uh, specialty uh, to be very good or to be a very good quizzer, or is it just better? So Scott, what are your thoughts on this? One? This is a great question because we talk about specializing often and question type specialties and making lists and all this stuff. And it is absolutely not necessary to be a good quizzer or even a very good quizzer. But there are a couple things that you have to be aware of when you decide if you should specialize or not. Um, I would say two kind of three things. One big thing is what level of quizzing are you in? Are you in district quizzing junior or uh, constellations. Are you in district level finals or semifinals or um, yeah, finals or semifinals? 
Are you going to Great West or Winter Nationals or another um, similar inter-district meet? Are you going to internationals? Those things matter a lot because um, the closer you are to a district and junior consolations, the easier it will be to score without specializing at all. So that would be the first big variable. And then the second big variable is what kind of scoring do you want to do? If you want to average an 80 in your district, well, it might not be enough to memorize the whole material but have no, like, question specialties. That might be kind of tough to get something as good as an 80 for a whole year in your district. Um, if you just wanted to get a 40, there's absolutely no need to specialize. You just need to know a good chunk of the material pretty well, and you can probably do that. It's kind of similarly in internationals. If you wanted to average a 10 or a 15 or something, um, you probably don't need to specialize. You you would need to be very good at the material, and you're probably going to be jumping largely on interrogatives. But I don't think any sort of specialty or list work is required if that's what you want to score. Um, once you start getting above a 20 in internationals, then I think you start quickly getting into um, the need to specialize. Um, and I will get to why in a second. The third or kind of half, two and a half variable is how much work do you want to put in? So at the district level, if you want to average a 50, but you don't want to specialize, well, you kind of have to know most of the verses pretty well um, if you want to be averaging two and a half correct questions a quiz. Um, on the other hand, if you wanted to just study, um, reference questions aren't the greatest example. If you just wanted to make a list of verses that could be finished in quote questions and study that, it might be a quarter of the material or a third of the material. And if you work really hard at that, you can average maybe something like a 50 within your district. Um, you would be memorizing fewer verses in some, but probably needing to do a little bit more work. And very similar in internationals, right? If you want to average a 10 um, and you don't want to specialize at all, well, you kind of probably want to know most of the material pretty well. So if you jump on a, a unique interrogative, you're able to get it right. On the other hand, if you want to just go nuts on multiple answers, if you have a multiple answer list, you really just have to study that list, which could be a fifth or a sixth of the material or even less. Um, you could average a 10 or a 15 on just that one question type, but you have to be really, really good at it. So those three parts, again, are what level of quizzing are you at? What kind of score do you want to have? And then the last mini variable is how much work do you want to put in? And the reason that as you, as the levels of quizzing get higher and your scoring aspirations get higher that I think you need to specialize is because of how fast the jumping goes. It pushes the overall accuracy cl pretty close to 50%. And if you want to consistently be scoring, which you, you need to have some consistency if you want to average above a 20 at, say, internationals, you need to have go-tos. And... In my opinion, the only way to have go-tos is to be one of the, say, best five quizzers at a specific question type at the entire meet. Um, that doesn't mean that if you're not one of the best five at a question type, you will not score at all. But I think if you went through the top 25, 30 quizzers, each of them has at least one type that they are pretty awesome at and work really hard at. Um, and so... It just helps to have something that you've worked really, really hard on, have supreme confidence in, and can really, really jump at that edge of the pace needed to win jumps consistently and still be able to get it right. And that requires a lot of work. And I think the work required to do that almost necessitates 
specializing because the work to do to be at that level on every single question type might almost be impossible <laughs> given the amount of hours in, in a day. Those are my thoughts, Griffin. Yeah, and I totally agree with everything. Um, material sizing for the season may play some factor in terms of like increasing or decreasing the value that you get from specialization to a small degree. Um, but again, I don't think regardless of the, sh the like the I'm, I'm trying to think in my head, like the shortest year versus the longest year in terms of material length, I, I still don't think it substantially changes what Scott says at all. I think it's just really more tiny tweaks to the knobs of like the importance of specialization versus not. I don't think in any case it's critical, right? Um, and of course, a lot of this is also going to be dependent upon your, your district, right? So, you know, what does it take to score well at a district meet? Well, it kind of depends on what your district is like, right? And every district is a little bit different. Um, but, uh, you know, for the longer material years, my expectation would be that it would very slightly reduce the value of specialist. Well, Okay, in some ways it would reduce the, the value of specializations, but in other ways it might actually increase it. Scott, what, what are your thoughts about the variable uh, material length relative to this question? It definitely matters the level that you're quizzing it. So I am just going to treat every district's district quizzing as the same. They're not going to be exactly the same, but just kind of as a proxy. Mm -hmm. um, I think in district quizzing, the longer the material year, the less you would need to specialize to score um, a good score, a high score, whatever. So all things being equal, the longer the material, the less that you need to specialize. I think that that probably holds true at the internationals level. Although generally the quizzers that are qualifying for internationals just have, just like have the same material knowledge and preparation, regardless of the material length at that point, since you're talking about the top, you know, 5% or 3% of quizzers, uh, it doesn't really matter how long the material is. I would say that in a very short year, like Hebrews or GEPC, you have got to be pretty awesome. You have, you have to be specializing on your types, even interrogatives. You have to work really, really hard on them because the speed, the jumping speed gets pushed right to the absolute brink because of how unique the material is. You know, um, in Long narrative material, chapter references can be really difficult in an 80-verse chapter, 60-verse chapter, and that kind of keeps the speed lower, but also invites a quizzer who wants to do a lot of study to get them. But in a short year, like Hebrews or GEPC, there's no, no such dynamic around either chapter references or CVRs and quotes on chapters with more than 20 verses, because those don't exist. And so you just have to work really, really hard on a small number of question types if you want to score consistently in a very, very short material year like that. Yeah, totally agreed. All right, well, let's move on to the bulk of our show here where we are going to be talking about the worst quizzing practices. And we don't mean like at a quiz practice itself, but actually the things that we do. And maybe Scott and I are guilty some of, of some of these in our history as well. Uh, things that people do, either quizzers, coaches, officials, leadership, whatever, that are maybe not the best examples of quizzing and or actually might even go so far as to hurt quizzing uh, in a lot of ways. So we're going to be talking about these things similar to past umbrage -y kind of things where we're going to talk about the, the thing and then we'll give it a umbrage scale, how much taking of umbrage we want uh, from a scale of one to ten, where one is 
eh, it's really not that big a deal. 210 is we will die on this hill. This is a big deal, you know, and, and maybe we're blowing it out of a proportion, but probably not. Uh, and of course, I do want to stress that most of these items are not the norm. They are exceptions to the norm. And so that's why we're pointing them out, because we don't really want them to become the norm. We want to kind of maybe point them out and by doing so, hopefully improve quizzing as a result. And of course, you know, topics here, we will attempt to provide real examples without names or enough information to be able to identify, you know, any specific situations or anything like that. But the idea is to self become self-critical for the opportunity to grow and improve. So we're going to kind of We've organized this from sort of a inward outward perspective. Um, we're going to start with quizzers and kind of work to officials and then coaches and then kind of into the uh, larger sort of uh, managerial uh, question writers, quiz masters and program leaders and so forth and kind of work outward uh, that way. So with quizzers, um, Scott, do you want to tackle the first one here? Yes, our first one is quizzers not speaking loudly enough, clearly enough, or directed at the quiz master. So I have had many times where a parent or a spectator has come up to me and said, can you require the quizzers to speak louder and into the mic and directed towards the quiz master slash audience so that like we can hear them? And I said, you know what? I would love that too, but there's really we can't require that. We just say the quizzers have, it's their responsibility to make themselves heard. And if they do that in a really poor sense, well, that's kind of on them. I have no, nothing else that I can levy on them to make them do that. But thinking as a quizzer, there's really no opportunity to game the system. It's not like you can mumble the things that you're not sure about, but say clearly the things that you are sure about. Because as a quiz master, I'm just trying to listen to everything that you're saying as best I can. And if I can't hear it, I can't hear it. And if I can, I can. And I'm not differentiating between whether you sound confident or not or whether I know it to be correct or not. Like, I'm just trying to listen. So you might as well just articulate everything um, to me so that I hear it all. And I think it would be a really good practice for a quizzer to um, come to the mic, speak clearly, direct it at the quiz master, articulately with a good speed, um, everyone who's watching the quiz will be really appreciative of it. And I think it's, it's just really good practice for public speaking in life. And I don't see any downside to doing so. Yeah, I totally agree. It, it, there is a downside to not speaking loudly enough, right? Like, like this is the thing. It can only hurt you. It cannot help you in any way to mumble or to kind of couch or your, your words or to, uh, you know, come across as not confident. It can't, it can't help you in any way. It can only hurt you, right? Like we're, we're either going to hear what you're mumbling or we're not. And if we don't hear it, we basically have to just count you wrong. If there's something in what you're mumbling that actually makes you correct, right? Um, there, there's just no value, uh, to not just coming out and, and being loud and clear and, and, you know, just pointed at the quiz master. Now, that being said, I totally understand, you know, when you jump and the pressure's on, you're totally in your head. You're kind of going right back to like, how did I practice? You're not even really thinking about it, right? You're just, you're, you're immediately in your head trying to, you know, figure out the answer and, and recite the answer and get it word perfect and all that kind of stuff. And there's a lot of pressure and I totally get that. But that's sort of another reason why 
it is a good idea to practice the way you want to perform. So in your practices, in your, you know, practice rooms, right, with your your coach and your, your teammates and so forth, do you make a habit of walking to your coach, assuming your coach is running the, the, the practice, walking to your coach, facing your coach and reciting in a clear and loud enough voice? Or are you, you know, kind of wandering back and forth and pacing and looking the other direction while you're answering and so forth? Like the way you practice is the way that you're going to perform. So try to perform uh, in practice the way you want to perform on stage. Absolutely. Can you take this next one, Griffin? Yeah, sure. Well, actually, before we do, what's your umbrage level on this one? Oh, that's right. I have a weird umbrage level because I want to say hi because I want you to be our you know, articulate and clear and speak with a good pace and loudly and all of that. But on the other hand, I'm not going to require it of quizzers. I'm not going to hold it against you if you don't, you know? So it's my umbrage level's kind of in the middle, maybe a five or a four or something. Okay. For me, it's a little bit lower. Um, it doesn't happen terribly often. And I, I mean, it's really, it doesn't really hurt anybody except the quizzer that's doing it. So it's not particularly systemic in that regard. Um, so for me, it's kind of like a two, maybe a three. Uh, I think it's certainly, it shouldn't be ignored. I think quizzers should try really hard not to do this. Uh, but um, my umbrage level is pretty low. But anyway, all right, moving on to the next one. Quizzers act, in, so sometimes quizzers can, uh, reportedly, and I've, I've seen this happen from time to time too, quizzers can act superior to non-quizzers in local church venues. So imagine like there's a youth group experience. There have been some reports, and I've seen sometimes where this happens, where quizzers end up acting superior to non-quizzers because like, hey, you know, I, anybody can be in youth group, but only, you know, the cool kids are, are quizzers, right? Um, or only the, the cool kids uh, will spend time memorizing and this makes us somehow better or superior and so forth. So this is an unfortunate thing. It's really super contrary to the whole spirit of quizzing. Uh, one of the things that's fantastic about the spirit of quizzing is that we're actually encouraging to people who are rookies coming into the, into the, the, the program. Certainly we want to be victorious and we want to defeat all the other teams, which is synonymous for being victorious. Uh, but at the same time, we're wanting everyone to do as well as they possibly can. There isn't uh, the whole nature of like somebody feeling superior to somebody else because of their activity in quizzing is really just contrary to quizzing. And it's, I believe it's contrary to, to scripture as well. That being said, I totally understand, you know, quizzers are, you know, junior high, middle school, high school, uh, you know, folks, some folks haven't, you know, people mature at different rates and some people mature at age 13 and some people don't mature until they're 18. And some people mature even after that. And that's understandable. It, this, these things sort of happen. Uh, so, you know, with that said, it's definitely something that I don't like to see because I think it makes quizzing look bad. It's also negative for the program itself, because if there, if quizzing develops the reputation of having quizzers in the program acting superior to non-quizzers, certainly, you know, uh, either parents or, uh, you know, uh, uh, pastors at a church may be apprehensive to supporting the idea of quizzing happening within that church. So for me, I'd say my umbrage level is pretty high on this one. Um, I, I mean, it doesn't happen very often, but when it does happen, I'd say my umbrage level is pretty high. I'd call it like a, like a six, um, I think is where I'd peg it. But Scott, what do you think? 
I don't have a lot of experience with this. Um, maybe not. I haven't interacted with a lot of youth and non-quizzing settings in the church, so I don't. I don't have a lot of experience with this. But I do know that when I quizzed, I generally only hung out at quiz meets with other quizzers who scored really well. Now, I think that was largely due to me being very socially awkward. And so if I knew that you were also a quizzer who scored well, if I started talking about something super nerdy and specific to Bible quizzing, there was a greater chance that you would know what I'm talking about and be interested (laughs) and want to talk about it. Um, But I think a lot of the other quizzers who scored well kind of just hung out with the other quizzers who scored well. And later when I was involved with the district, we had a quizzer who was an awesome, awesome quizzer, but loved hanging out with everyone. And it didn't matter at all how you scored. And the district was definitely better for it. So I love it when coaches uh, encourage quizzers to um, like, because I I think often the quizzers who score really well are looked up to. And that means that they can have tremendous influence for good on other quizzers, quizzers on their team and quizzers in the district, just about being friends and uh, being inclusive to them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, a couple other things. Um, one, I've noticed this. I've actually noticed this even at, at internationals, uh, unfortunately. But quizzers, so, uh, individual quizzers, sometimes getting distracted at a meet, uh, having a little bit too much social time, uh, or or allowing their social time to distract them away from the clock, so they don't pay attention to the clock, and therefore they don't show up to a quiz on time. Uh, it's not terribly often, fortunately. Um, usually coaches handle this pretty pretty effectively, if not extremely effectively. But it is one of those things with which, uh, you know, as a, a former coach and as an official at meets, I, I definitely take a little umbrage that quizzers need to pay attention to the clock. Uh, and most do, but some don't. I would put this almost entirely on coaches. Um, and I know that some quizzers are 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 going to be um, consistently less responsible and on time, but to me, it's on the coach to make sure that the quizzers are on time. And if they know that some quizzers are less reliable, to build in whatever they need to uh, to make sure that this happens. Now, to coach's credit, there have been times where quizzers are not there, and the coach is like, "Hey, I told them to be here, and they're not. Please start the quiz because they, you know, they need to learn," which is awesome. But I remember a case where a team was late to a quiz. And the schedule was checked and they had not been quizzing in the previous time slot. So it wasn't a case of a quiz running over and they were late. And when they showed up, the coach just took time to meet with the team and pray with the team before the quiz started. And I was like, I was quiz mastering that year, but I was not quiz mastering this, this quiz. I was just observing and I was floored that the coach was like fine being late and then expected to begin the quiz just like if they had been on time. Yes. Uh, and so this happens super rarely. But in those cases, I think if you're the quiz master, it's on you to sit to like, I mean, I would always be checking lights and doing practice questions so that ideally I am ready to start at the second this quiz is scheduled to start. And part of the penalty for being late is, is um, not being there for the first one, two, three, four, five questions, in addition to not getting your 20 point bonus for being on time. And I think a lot of quiz masters want the teams to be there. And like, I definitely do too. But if you wait past the scheduled time to start your quiz, you are treating teams that were on time and teams that were late equally. And that is what I don't want to do. I don't want to go out of my way to make a team miss questions, but I definitely do not want to treat teams that were on time and teams that were not equally. 
Yeah, I totally agree. And I think my umbrage level goes much higher when a coach is ambivalent to the clock. Um, it, you know, it, it's one thing if, if, if a team is, is, you know, locked into a particular other room and they can't get out because they're, you know, the, the, the quiz is running a little bit long and then they show up to your room late that these things happen. That's totally understandable. And 99% of the time the coaches come in and say, yeah, we were in room such, such and such. And I'm like, yeah, I know, <laughs> you know, it's, it's totally cool. Um, but yeah, you're right with, if, if the team kind of walks in and the coach it then is una almost unaware and just like, yep, we're, we're here now. And now we're going to take our time to, you know, pray and talk strategy and all this and figure out the seating arrangements and so forth. It's like, no, that time has passed. Uh, it, it, it's really inappropriate to, to make everybody else late and ultimately potentially make the entire meet run behind schedule because you're, you know, didn't pay attention to the schedule showed up late and now are, you know, delaying even further. So yeah, I'd, I'd say my umbrage level there is, I don't know, seven, something like that. So it gets pretty high. All right, so poor quizzer attitudes in general. Um, this kind of relates to uh, kind of the quizzers acting superior thing, but but it's not quite the same. So it's, it's situations where it, instead of actively doing something that's bad, it's sort of quizzers who tend to not do something that is good. So for example, a, a veteran quizzer who knows what's going on, who sees a rookie that is kind of is overwhelmed by the situation and doesn't know what, what's going on, a veteran quizzer can ignore them and focus on getting ready for the quiz, or they can go over and encourage the rookie and help the rookie and, and show them the ropes and that kind of thing. And I think the, the, the act of doing that is so incredibly beneficial to everybody. It, it's beneficial, obviously, to the rookie. It's beneficial to their team. I think it's beneficial to you and the entire program. And so I think you know, looking for opportunities to help people from other teams is uh, just a really wonderful aspect of quizzing. And I, I, I think that is the majority of the case uh, in, in most cases, in, in both in, in the context of district or church level or interdistrict and, and internationals. But I certainly want to kind of point this out and encourage that it continue and expand. And sort of the sort of the piggyback to that is the idea that there are some times when quizzers can be disrespectful of officials at the meet. I don't think, well, I was going to say I don't think most intend to be disrespectful. There have been uh, some situations in the not-too-distant past where, you know, quizzers have been intentionally disrespectful of officials. I think that's inappropriate, and by and large, officials are really not going to say anything until or unless the disrespect really gets egregious. Uh, and so it might be one of those things where, you know, coaches, you need to be keeping an eye on that and uh, either calling time out or stepping in or in other ways, you know, dealing with the disrespect that happens uh, as an official. If it's something that's particularly egregious, we can call a foul on it. But generally speaking, a lot of that is so subjective. I mean, it's sort of like art. We all see it. We know that it's there, but it's subjective enough that we're not going to necessarily call a foul on it. We're sort of hoping that coaches will take care of things privately. Um, but uh, yeah, quizzers, we, we definitely want to see a high level of sportsmanship at the meet, and that includes being respectful. Yeah, I don't have a ton to add because, you know, I don't, I don't want to harp like, 
it's hard because it is a serious matter, but I don't want to be too serious or draconian about like don't be disrespectful of officials because I don't want quizzers to be scared of officials or like place any reference on them. Um, I think there is a minimum standard of behavior and it does have to rise to a pretty high level before I will do anything as official because I'm not the parent. I'm not the coach. Um, I don't want to, you know, because it is an, a largely subjective situation, I as much as possible, don't want to get involved with behavior issues, but I take a very hard line as an official when it affects other participants of the quiz. Um, and so we've had quizzers that, for whatever reason, are somewhat disruptive. Um, and as much as possible, I want to give the quizzer grace. We have all kinds of ages and abilities and situations. Um, but the moment that it starts affecting other participants of the quiz is where I draw the line. And I will assign fouls or say this quizzer like needs to leave the stage or other things like that. And that's kind of my, my measuring stick is, uh, is it affecting others? Because if it is merely affecting me and maybe it is some level of disrespectful, but, um, you know, I'm not going to call a foul or, you know, there've been pretty poor intentioned challenges that have happened or large size after I make a ruling. And I'm not going to call a foul on a quizzer or anything like that. Um, if it's very repeated, I might chat with a coach at some point, but my amateur level is, it's weird because it's probably high if it's a serious situation, but it's, it's a very uncommon thing. Yeah, I totally agree. And when I say disrespectful, I want to be really clear to everybody. I'm not talking about being casual with the officials at the table. Like, like, Definitely, I'm encouraging quizzers to have a casual, informal, relaxed, friendly, you know, relationship with the officials at the table, right? Engage in conversation, you know, uh, if you're waiting on a third team to show up, you know, banter, you know, share jokes, That that's all totally fine, right? Like, in fact, I in, in a lot of ways, I see some good that comes from that. What I'm talking about are the truly just disrespectful, the, the poor attitude, uh, kind of stuff, not just not, not being friendly is, is not what we're talking about here. So, all right. Um, so let's move on here and talk about, uh, things, umbrages that we take with adults in various capacities. So coaches, officials, leadership in general. So this is sort of a big bucket uh, group here, and then we'll kind of divide and conquer into some specific things that relate just to say coaches or quiz masters or program leaders and so forth. So the first item in our sort of adult bucket, and it's really interesting. I, I have, correct me if you have experienced something different than this, Scott, but in my experience, well, let me describe the thing <laughs> first and then I'll, then I'll, uh, so the first item on the, on the list here is Adults sometimes, not all, but but there are occasionally adults that really have difficulty accepting uh, feedback. Uh, they take feedback very personally. Uh, they don't take it well. They they get offended by the feedback. Uh, it's 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 weird. It's kind of a strange sort of response there because at least in my experience, quizzers like almost always are receptive to feedback. Um, and so I find that kind of interesting that quizzers seem to be very open to constructive criticism uh, and adults, well, not all adults, but but some adults have some troubles there. So, Scott, what are your thoughts on this one? It's probably not different from almost any organized youth activity where if you would ask the administrators uh, or the people involved, like, who causes the most problems? I would imagine overwhelmingly the answer is adults and not the youth. Yeah. And yeah. Um, 
I'm not sure what the dynamics are. I mean, I'm sure as people get older, they have more of definitely more of an ability to stand up for themselves or a willingness to stand up for themselves, um, but probably also have an increased level of confidence in themselves for better or for worse. And another aspect is that there are often parents involved. And I definitely am going to, um, or at least as an official, I know that a parent is going to act differently when it is their kid involved than if it is um, just a coach with, you know, a non-child. And so that's just a reality that's going to exist in any organized youth competition. Um, But I think also as people get older and older, um, you have more, I don't know, you kind of have a sense of your own identity and anything that seeks to poke a hole in that identity is something that makes you very uncomfortable. Whereas children and high, even high schoolers, you know, you're still kind of learning who you are and your, um, what you want your place to be in the world and what, what you want your identity to be and those kinds of things. And so there's, there's less of a defensiveness, I think when feedback comes. So there's, there's lots of, Lots of things in play, lots of variables. Yeah. I want to give um, real quick three examples. Uh, These are all real things that have actually happened um, as just sort of ways that kind of um, illustrate this sort of personally taking things personal when you get feedback. So, you know, one situation is an official at a quiz meet. I think it was a quiz master privately mentions to a coach about a quizzer having a poor attitude, uh, maybe being disrespectful and, and so forth. And the coach just flat out rejects the feedback and considers it a personal insult, both to the quizzer and the coach that the official provided private feedback to the coach about the quizzer. Um, That's just kind of, in my opinion, I think that's kind of silly. It doesn't mean that the official is necessarily right, uh, but the fact that the coach reacted that way kind of lends me to believe that the official was probably right. Um, Because, I mean, it just kind of, it seems like a strange, I mean, receiving feedback, you don't have to agree with the feedback to accept the feedback. You can say like, oh, cool, cool, thank you for the feedback. And then you say to yourself, do I agree? No, I totally disagree. Okay, fine. That's legitimate. Um, But, you know, to be, to react negatively to, to, you know, criticism is, is interesting, especially criticism that's done privately and for constructive purposes and so forth. So the second example is a quiz master receives feedback that their pacing is rough or that they made an incorrect ruling in a past quiz or something. And the quiz master ends up essentially talking in logical circles to basically avoid being considered wrong. Um, And I've seen that happen from time to time. And that's just silly. Um, And then the third example is a leader at a church or a district or even an internationals level receives feedback that they're not being sufficiently communicative or transparent or receptive to feedback. And uh, they, instead of accepting that feedback and either doing something or deciding, no, there's nothing I need to do, they instead actually get defensive or argumentative or dismissive, or in one case that I experienced, all three, uh, which is weird and unfortunate. And I think it's a, a really bad thing. And so, especially when you're, you're talking about something, um, you know, a leader at, say, a district level that acts defensive, argumentative, and dismissive of constructive uh, you know, feedback, 
I, I put that at a very high uh, umbrage level for me. Um, I, and I, I could just be, you know, getting triggered by these sorts of things. But for me, it's like an eight or a nine. Um, if you're, you know, the leader of a church program or a district program, you have a, a heavy responsibility on your shoulders. And I sympathize with that heavy responsibility, but you need to be always open to feedback. You don't have to agree with it, but you need to be open to receiving that feedback. Yeah. I, I mean, I have random stories that come to mind in, in PNW, you know, we have a specific church hosts a meet and, um, it's the program leader of that church program that handles a lot of the hosting responsibilities and, you know, involving billeting and food and things like that. And so we have a registration deadline that is two weeks before the meet starts. And when I was running PNW, there were some cases of teams or church programs not meeting that deadline. So then I said, hey, I need a way to make sure that this happens because the meet host needs to know exactly how many people are coming and how many people want lunch um, and things like that. So I said, hey, if you don't register by the deadline, um, all of your teams don't get their starting 20-point bonus for every prelim um, because that's a, a team penalty. It doesn't affect individuals, um, at least directly. And, you know, and then there was a case of a team missing the deadline and I levied the penalty and got a lot of pushback from the coach asking, why are you going to penalize the quizzers for something that I missed? We run vacation out of the country. And I just said, there aren't there multiple teams and multiple adults and coaches involved. And you could have registered at any point from when the last meet ended to now, which has been five weeks. And it just seemed ridiculous that I was even having the conversation, but the conversation was around the penalty being unjust and not how difficult or easy it was to spend the honestly 10 minutes registering, um, within a five week window. So that, you know, that that's an example of, um, what, you know, what I perceive as irrationality by a coach. Like I'm just trying to like give good information to the meat host. If you were the meat host, I'm pretty sure you would not want good information dragging on one week three days, one day before meet started. Um, and I'm definitely going to provide that courtesy to every single meet host that we have. Yeah. And then there was, there was another case where you know, there's the rule where a coach can bring a foul to the attention of, an, an, of the quiz master that the quiz master did not call. Um, and the quiz master is not allowed to then call it in that situation. Um, but a coach is allowed to bring it to the attention of the official. Well, this happened at internationals where a foul wasn't called. And during a timeout, a question or two later, I went up to the quiz master and told them, like, I think you missed this foul um, that should have been called. And I immediately got a lot of attitude and pushback from the scorekeeper who happened to be related to the quiz master. And I was just like, I don't know what we're arguing about. Like, we can argue about whether my interpretation and application of the rulebook is incorrect. And if you have a different interpretation of it, but it was just it was like full on defensiveness, right? And at the end of the day, we just are trying to get it right for the quizzers. And I don't know why you would take it personally, you know, in that case, right. unless you were kind of almost like looking for it or you felt like um, any sort of feedback was, per you know, I, I don't know. There's, um, I, I think people lose sight of what people are trying to do. So if, and especially if I'm providing feedback and you think that I'm not doing it for the benefit of a quiz program or a quizzer or the competition or something, but you think I'm just being punitive against an individual, well, that's absolutely something that you should say back to me. Right. And then that's the conversation that we have, but the outright defensiveness and wanting to find any reason to make my feedback null and void, um, sh seems out of left field and unproductive. Yeah, totally. 
Well, so another thing that I've noticed, and again, this doesn't happen very often, but it does happen, are these weird, I don't know exactly how to describe it, so I'm going to describe it as turf battles or turf wars or like spheres of authority or something, or authority is not the right word, sphere of reputation or something around, around program size. Uh, or where your program happens to be in terms of quality relative to other programs. Uh, and then there's this kind of kind of weird air of superiority around it. So, you know, we were talking about quizzers acting superior to non-quizzers. I've seen situations where adults will act superior to other adults because either their church or their district is more numerous in terms of quizzers, or their team is like, you know, it's they're one of the, the, the top two or three teams. So they tend to uh, kind of have this kind of attitude of like, I'm, I'm, I'm cooler, I'm better because I'm the coach of the number one team or, or, you know, the top, a team in the top three or something like that. And it's just bizarre. Um, you know, like I'm, I'm very much a, a believer that, you know, yeah, if, if you're consistently coaching, you know, a, a team into the top three, then that's really cool. And I want to know how you're doing it and I want to learn from you. But the idea that, say, in a coach's meeting, your voice should count more than, say, another coach, that just, that that doesn't really, that doesn't fly with me at all. So, I don't know. Scott, have you encountered this at all? I don't think I've encountered this at all. And I have experienced some coaches that are crazy, crazy competitive and very involved, but I don't recall anyone projecting a level of um, superiority because of um, their program leading or coaching or how their quiz teams did or anything like that. Yeah, and and the competition, I, I, I'm not speaking out against a competitive attitude. In fact, I, I really like coaches that are competitive, that are engaged and really pushing their team for higher and higher levels of excellence, right? So this is not about you know, a coach who's like, I really want my team to get first place and, and I'm going to push them to, you know, get as good as they can be. This is this sort of this weird thing of saying, well, because I am already, because I, my team is in first place, I somehow am a better coach than other people and my voice should count more than the other. It's just weird situations like that. Again, not the norm, uh, but I definitely really, really, really want it to never become the norm. So hence why I'm pointing it out. So here's a question for you. Um, I know that there are quiz districts that have a, a very small number of churches involved, and it might be the case where a church um, has so many quizzers that they comprise half the district or some large percentage, right? Right. Um, kind of thinking about how the United States 13 colonies got formed, right? There's the issue of representation in Congress or in the government where the smaller potential colonies were like, hey, if you if you give us the amount of representation um, requisite to our population, we're just going to get run over. Um, but if you're the big potential colonies, you're like, well, we control the population. Why shouldn't we have more of a say? So, I mean, how would you kind of um, think that sort of conversation could go if it happened at a district level where there might be a church that is half the district or some large percentage and they say, isn't it reasonable that we have a little bit more influence in how decisions are made? Right. So 
There's a couple of things. We are not large enough. I mean, really, we're really talking about here about the Great Compromise, the difference between the Senate and the House. And, you know, in quizzing, unfortunately, at least in PNW, our district is not large enough where it is a viable mechanism to elect both a Senate and a House. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, would that be the case? That would be a wonderful thing and a wonderful, you know, that would be great. So we we ultimately can't do that because that's just there's not enough people um but uh so we have very clearly come down on the side of saying we will be uh more like the senate than we will the house um because of exactly what you're talking about we we would we want to ensure that every church has a voice and that that no one church sort of out voices all the other churches and we so that's ensconced in terms of our bylaws but what practically what happens is that a larger church has a sort of unofficial larger voice anyway just because of the number of people that are involved right so if you're talking about say a conversation uh, a non-voting situation where you're simply having a bunch of coaches in a coaches meeting, leadership meeting, and you're like, hey, let's discuss topic X, right? And what do we think we want to do about X, you know, kind of stuff. The the church that has more coaches in the room is by the, the very nature of having more coaches in the room is going to have a larger voice in terms of the conversation, even though they don't really have a larger voice in terms of the actual vote, right? And of course, what, it, what, it, what really ends up happening, right, in terms of what really happens in 99.973% of, you know, voting events in a quizzing situation, you basically have unanimous votes. I mean, I, I mean, certainly when things are at, you know, the internationals level, it, it, it changes a little bit more. But when you're talking about at the district level where we're meeting together, you know, many times during the course of a season and we all each we all know each other by our first names. Everybody's very familiar with everybody else. I. Uh, you know, the, the, when we vote on something, there's never a split vote. It's always, it's, it's, I mean, in fact, I don't think we've ever not had a unanimous vote ever, um, in either a coach's meeting or a board meeting. Right. Um, which is great. I mean, it's, it, it, it's great that we've had that kind of unanimity, uh, even though we don't necessarily need it. And of course, you know, in that sort of universe, uh, you know, a, a church that has a large number of coaches is going to have a larger voice in the discussion. So in a kind of a way, we are kind of being both a House and a Senate, although ensconced in the bylaws, we are clearly on the Senate side of things. I think it's also up to not only the district coordinator, but anyone who is in leadership within a district or really at any level to be aware of the the personalities that you have involved. Um, I remember when I was leading PNW in a casual conversation, a program leader just said, often in meetings, it takes me longer to um, like kind of crystallize my thoughts and it will make it um, harder or less common for me to speak up in a, a wide meeting. Well, because I know this, like I'm a very similar sort of person. I'm more introverted. I'm less less apt to just jump into a conversation or speak up publicly. But because I knew this, I kind of 
always had an eye during meetings. Like, ooh, do, do they look like they have something to say? And maybe if I help provide an opportunity, then um, they can say something, right? And just being aware of personalities that maybe just are very talkative and um, kind of might monopolize conversation or feedback during a meeting. I think it can be very useful for whoever is leading or in leadership at a meeting. Yeah, absolutely. And as a result of, of the dynamic that you're talking about, I try to, I don't know if I've always been perfect at this, but I try to not raise an issue out of nothing uh, or, or raise an issue without previously having thrown the issue out to the coaches and then ask for a vote. But rather, I will throw out an issue or throw out a topic at a meeting, have some discussion, take some feedback, and then say, okay, um, we'll think about this and the board will make a decision. If you have any other feedback, let us know, you know, over the next couple of days or whatever it is, right? Like the idea being that like, yeah, those who are able and interested and have something to say in the moment can speak their minds and speak their peace and so forth. Those uh, folks, myself included, who typically are more in our heads and want some time to sort of formulate our ideas, we can do that sort of asynchronously and then have, you know, a couple of days to write off an email and, and all of that feedback gets considered at, at, at once rather than saying, okay, here's an issue that's out of nowhere. I haven't given you a heads up uh, that, that we're going to talk about it. And now let's talk about it and vote, right? You know, that kind of thing that I don't think has ever happened. I hope it doesn't unless there's some sort of like emergency situation that, that pops up. Uh, if we do have to vote about something on a timely basis, I will do everything I can to ship out the information about the decision, about the decision or about the, 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 the topic ahead of time so that coaches have some time to formulate their thoughts prior to the meeting. So, but that's definitely something to, to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, so another thing that I've noticed, um, and again, this is not the common mm -hmm. case. It's a very non-common case, but I've noticed that, uh, uh, some of uh, not officials, but, but officials and coaches and other adult leaders, they seem to have motivations that seem to be more around prestige building, uh, than around, a desire to help the quizzers. It, it's sort of like decisions seem to be about what causes the person to be seen in the best possible light rather than what's best for current or future quizzers uh, or the current program or the future program or someone that wants to be in a position of leadership just to sort of have the title of that leadership position. They don't actually want to do very much work. And so like I've, I've seen situations where somebody is like, I really want to be this thing, this title, they get the title and then they sort of disappear. Like they, they almost phone it in at the, this point and do, you know, only the, the smallest amount of work necessary to sort of maintain their title, uh, which is just bizarre. It seems like they're, they're doing it for the title and not for the you know, in the best interest of quizzers. And so for me, again, this is, this, this doesn't happen very often, but when I have noticed this, my umbrage level is very high, uh, like an eight or a nine, um, possibly even a 10, uh, because like, to me, this is, this is a, when somebody is, is actually motivated this way, or if they are not motivated this way, but their actions 
make it appear like they are motivated this way, it is a cancer uh, for quizzing. Uh, it, it, it is massively demotivating for anybody that's in their sphere of, of influence. So that's why I have I take massive levels of umbrage for, for this sort of thing. So Scott, what do you think about this one? I agree that I would take massive levels of umbrage as well. I have not had many observations of people who care about um, like as you as you have termed it prestige building or title um, I think the only case that I can really fat like remember is you know a non-quizzing CMA person who definitely just wanted kind of the reverence or the the title to to um, cause people to um, have reverence for um, but I don't I don't think I've seen this within within quizzing that sort of prestige building. Um, I have I have witnessed the phoning it in. I mean, there have been officials who, at times in their officialship, I have thought were unbelievably amazing, just incredible, and in later years were much less so, mediocre to subpar. And to me, like I wish that weren't the case because at the end of the day, you're hurting quizzers um, if you are. If your standard for um, being an official drops, um, but I don't think I've seen, you know, I, you know, I definitely witnessed what I think is inaction or apathy while in a leadership role, but I don't know that I've seen that paired with revere me or respect me because of the title per se. Yeah, the the apathy thing is definitely something that happens more, uh, more commonly, or or if not apathy, at least as sort of a seeming indifference to to quality or or the program, like coaches or officials who just phone it in, leaders who seem to, in a way, almost look for opportunities to cancel or leave early. There are, there are coaches that are like constantly looking for ways to just get on the road faster rather than later um, who skip over fellowship opportunities whenever they can. And it's just kind of like, well, why are you coaching? Why are you being an official? Why are you quiz mastering? If you're trying to do the least possible uh, and get, and get away with it. It's like, why not step aside and let somebody who has a passion for it, um, you know, actually exercise that passion. Yeah, I don't know that I have anything to add. My umbrage level would definitely be high with, I mean, with the apathy, I would put at a six or seven just because I don't think it takes a lot of effort if you're, say, a quiz master to make sure that your standards are still really high. Um, but then if you are involved in some sort of leadership or officialship and you really care about the title and how people perceive you because of the title, um, I would put my umbrage level even higher. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I'd, I'd say six or seven on apathy. And if you're about prestige building nine, possibly even a 10, because um, I just think it, it, it just undercuts so much. Um, all right. Well, let's move on to some specific coach related things. Um, Scott, what do you got the first on the list here? So the first one is actually a quizzer thing. It might be, um, which is score check requests by teams that are up 100 points or more. And again, this happens very infrequently. And even when it does happen, there is a portion of the time where the quizzer who's asking for the score check has no idea what the score is. Like they are, one question just happened, the next one is coming, and they're in the habit of asking for a score check. But um, it is often the captain. And I do think um, in situations where then I call out the score and it's 200 to 40 to zero, um, I think some awareness is not... Um, too much to ask in a situation like that. And I think I've only witnessed a, a quizzer doing this. 
Mm, okay. I've actually seen coaches do this. I don't think they mean to. I don't think it's meant as like a like a nefarious, hey, look, we're dominating and I'm, I want to point it out. I think it's really just more the coach isn't really paying attention or it's just a pattern. They always ask for a score check around question 16 or something like that. Uh, but yeah, to to your point, you know, if you're up by 100 points, just wait till the quiz is over and you can go up to the table and compare score sheets. And it, it's really not a big deal. Like um, it's not going to make, you know, if there's a 20 point swing somewhere there, it's not going to make a difference in the outcome of the quiz. And you can correct it very easily uh, when you get up there. Um, no need to sort of in it even unintentionally kind of rub it in in that regard. What's mm-hmm. your umbrage for this sort of thing? I don't know, a three or something yeah. low. Yeah, me too. Two, three. That's where I'd put uh, where I'd peg it. All right. So another thing I've I've seen coaches do is, uh, for lack of a better term, call it quizzer favoritism. And there's a couple of different ways to do quizzer favoritism. Um, there is a good way and a bad way. How's that? So the which I, and of course the good way isn't really favoritism. Um, but in in one certainly you're not going to treat every quizzer on your team exactly the same um, because there are some quizzers like every quizzer is different, right? There are some quizzers who study a lot, some who haven't studied a lot, some who are specializing in a certain area, some who are specializing in a different area. So treating them treating your quizzers differently for strategic reasons is totally reasonable, right? What I'm talking about is really more the idea of you know you're a parent of one of the quizzers and you happen to treat your kid on your team a little bit better or in some cases I've seen parents actually parent coaches treat their their quizzer on their their child their their offspring <laughs> quizzer actually worse than the other quizzers on the team and so it's all sort of like anti favoritism or unfavoritism um, or disfavoritism and all of those things I think are are bad and don't really have a place in quizzing, right? Um, there's a situations where, you know, I, I think Scott, you mentioned it before, where a quizzer happens to be the child of a coach and gets a special pass for poor attitude, uh, whatever that happens to be, uh, poor conduct or disrespectful conduct, and um, yeah, that's that's just not okay. I would agree. I don't know if a lot of specific examples come to mind on this i think more often than not um a coach may go too far the other direction as you have said um and i definitely remember times when a coach was um gonna coach one of our great west teams and i i would ask i I asked every coach that was coaching great west do you definitely want to coach your child or quizzers from your church or not um and it definitely was the case where a parent was like oh they don't want to be coached by me like they're coached by me all year like just put them on a different (laughs) team team Right. Um, but I don't see a whole lot of the non-strategic favoritism. Like maybe it happens very rarely. It does happen rarely. I wouldn't say very. I mean, I've experienced a couple of times where it, they're, they're, the quizzer of a child of a coach is getting a, a very super special pass. Like nothing the child can do is ever a problem. And of course, that just encourages more bad behavior. Um, and, and that's happened in the past. I think most of the time it's actually parents who are more harsh on their kids than they are for the other kids that are on the team. Um, there have been times where, you know, and of course when it's happening, I, I feel awkward saying, saying anything about it in the moment, but then reflecting afterwards, I'm kind of like, man, that 
I, I would hate to be that particular quizzer, <laughs> you know, where clearly they're getting called out more, more harshly because they're, they're, they're related, uh, to the, to the parent at uh, the parent coach. So, yeah, I don't think, I don't think, I don't think that's particularly appropriate. And I mean, imagine, you know, forget the relationship that you're harming, I think, between yourself as a coach, parent and your child, but imagine how it must feel for the other quizzers on the team. It, you know, the quizzers are smart and they're observant and, you know, they pick things up and they see things and you may think that you're not being observed, but you actually are. Um, and they're not going to say anything to you about it. So, you know, imagine how they're feeling about the situation uh, when these sorts of things take place. It's also funny when a quizzer will um, almost be the more responsible party in a quiz um, with their parent. <laughs> yes, yes. I've seen that happen from time to time as well. <laughs> well, let's pick up one more thing here. Um, so question writers, you have a, a, a handful of things of, of umbrages to take with question writers, don't you? Yeah, and I, I mean, I could probably go for two hours, but um, the f I will I will not. Um, <laughs> I, I'll be like um, a pastor who at a wedding ceremony says I could talk for 90 minutes and everyone groans. <laughs> because um, you know that they will talk for 92. Whenever a pastor at a wedding says I could talk for 90 minutes, but I'm not going to, everybody knows they're going to talk for 92 minutes. All right. Well, so I'm looking at the clock right now and I'm going to time myself and see how <laughs> okay. long I actually go. Okay. All right. So the first one is one of my largest pet peeves and it is question writers ignoring um, the rule book definitions for finish and quote questions. So I'm talking about when the rule book says um, has to be spiritually significant, stand on their own or significant to the chapter. Um, so stand on their own or spiritually significant or significant to the chapter. And I've heard every argument in the book, like, how can you say that any verse of the Bible is not spiritually significant? Um, but my response is, this is in the rule book. So it is definitely saying that it doesn't apply to every verse, because if it applied to every verse, we wouldn't put it in the rule book, because there would be no point to it. So it is absolutely saying not every verse rises to this standard. Now, I think at that point, it is subjective, and we can have conversations about like, oh, I think 1% of the verses rise to the spiritually significant standard or 99% of them rise to this standard. But right off the bat to say like, oh, every verse is spiritually significant because it's the Bible is like a weird, like acting dumb, avoiding of the actual situation. I like, I, I can't explain it because it's in the rule book for a reason. So someone said this, we want this to be there. So, um, yeah, my umbrage level would be super high because there are quizzers who will look at the rule book and say, oh, spiritually significant. I'm going to look at the verses and figure out what I think that means and make myself a study list. And then they show up at internationals and some amount of the question writers have just been picking every verse or most of the verses for these questions. Um, and the quizzer is the one who suffers. So um, I definitely think that there is a conversation to be had about what is the point of these question types, finish and quote questions at the district level and at the inter-district level? And is it the same goal? And do we need different sorts of definitions or rules? But at the end of the day, this exists in the rulebook and is ignored by, by some question writers. I think that is so, so wrong. Like it is there and it is your job to apply it as best as you can. And acting dumb and saying like, oh, 
Quizzers Internationals should know every verse or every verse is pretty significant. To me, it's like just the utmost of like, what are you even doing? <laughs> so my average level would be very high. Do you want to re- weigh in on these before I move on to other bullets? Uh, I'll, I'll just kind of throw my two cents in. I totally agree. And my umbrage level would probably be a, around a seven-ish um, because I think I don't think it's meant as a negative to the program. I think it's really more a complete misinterpretation of of the rule book uh, or a, a purposeful ignoring of 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 a phrase of the rule book and the reason why my umbrage level is so high um is not so much because of the motivation of the person who's doing it but rather the impact and and you mentioned the impact the impact is you're t- you're you're basically telling an internationals bound quizzer who has studied their their brains out who has specialized on this particular type who has put in a lot of the work uh, with a good faith interpretation of the rule book and shows up and realizes only after they show up that, yeah, all of that work is totally, you know, worthless. And that's just, that's soul crushing and uh, super demotivating and therefore against the mission of quizzing and therefore bad. Yeah. And I mean, I would definitely say that it is a personal issue for me because it happened to internationals where, you know, almost a decade ago now, but I had a I showed up as a coach and went through the officials and um, leaders meeting and it became clear to me that this was just being ignored by question writers, right? Um, And so I talked to Mike Wizard who had prepared endlessly for these types, digging into like, oh, um, do I think the spiritual significance of this verse that starts with the man is greater than this other verse? And I said, you know what? Pretty much all your studies out the window. And at this point, I am... I am comfortable if you don't want to jump on a single one of these or if you want to jump at everyone knowing that you might get a 10% accuracy, I am fine with whatever. But it just killed me to like talk to them and have that conversation before the meet started. Like you put in tens of hours of work and it kind of is for nothing now. Yeah, that's just horrible. So the next bullet is not using specialized finishing quote types for their specific purpose. So again, like I am willing to have the like the conversation about like, why do we have a finish these two? Like, um, and I quote these two, I've talked to someone who thinks that the, these types should be used when one of the verses cannot stand alone. Um, so only if one of the two cannot stand alone, should you write a pair? And I take a more liberal view where if I think as a pair, it is a stronger meaning then each verse separately, then I will write it as a pair. But I think both interpretations are completely useful and valid, but I definitely witness question writers avoiding this type because they don't want to make the question harder. They don't want to combine multiple verses into one question. And to me, there's no place for that, right? We have this type and, you know, you should be trying to figure out what are the best situations for me to apply this type. And I I presented one interpretation of somebody else and one of mine. And I think both are great. And I think it's useful for question writers to have the conversations among themselves um, about like, what is the best interpretation of this? But I see lots of people almost ignoring it and saying like, oh, I don't want to put two long verses together, even if they're amazing together, Um, which to me is lazy. Um, Similarly, finish this and finish this in the next questions. Like for years, we, we didn't have this type and we, you know, we asked quizzers all of these, Jesus answered, Jesus said, finish the verse questions, knowing that internationals are going to jump on one and a half, two syllables and have to guess among nine of them. And at some point someone was like, you know what? So many of these verses start with 
mostly inconsequential material, like he said or Jesus said, why don't we define a, a type that can kind of start after that? And um, I see people still write finish the verses that start with Jesus said, and it makes absolutely no sense to me. It's like there was a question type tailor made for this exact scenario, and you are blatantly ignoring it. I don't know if you're lazy or choosing to be ignorant or what, but it's just bad. And there are totally verses that start with, um, at dawn on the first day of the week, Jesus said, and I think no one would argue that like, oh, there's a lot of meaningful information there. Um, and wanting to write that as a finish the verse, great. Like you can definitely do that and maybe also write it as a finish this, who knows. Um, but the, he said, he answered, Jesus answered, finish the verses, just kill me every time they come up. It's like, oh, it's like having a multiple answer type written and then you just write it as a different type because you don't want to use that type. I don't, I don't understand it. Yeah. What's your umbrage level on this? I don't know. It probably would be eight or nine because I, I mean, the impact level is not super high, but to me, it's either willful, willful ignorance, laziness, or you are just not smart. And I don't, I don't know which it is, but I think all of it is inexcusable. Yeah. Okay. Um, third bullet under question writers is slanting towards writing easier questions. So, um, and I'm really talking about at the internationals level because I have quiz mastered quizzes at the district level. And maybe questions 17, 18, 19, and 20 all have gone to bonuses and people are just airing left and right. And you just want an interrogative that is unique quick um, to get the quiz over. And I think that's fine. And I think it's fine if you have a junior division or you're in consolations and you just want easier questions. I think that's fine. I know that there are districts that have junior quizzing or a junior division of senior quizzing where all the questions come from a club set of verses. And that's totally fine. <laughs> like you can, like that's great. But when we're talking about internationals, to deliberately select qu questions or write questions based on their difficulty, to me, like there's nothing about that. Like there's no definition of difficult or um, easy questions or saying like question writers should do this versus that. I think we have all of these types in front of us and it's our job to write Questions that are both valid, but also test the material using all of our question types that we have. Um, and deliberately deciding to write easy questions or deliberately deciding to write difficult questions, I think, has no place. You should be saying, does this question flow? Does it test the material well? Um, did I write 15 questions on this one phrase of one verse, but zero questions on the second half of this verse? Um, like maybe I should even it out a little bit. Like those are much more useful questions, but deciding to write it easier or harder to me makes no no sense because we want to test quizzers based on the whole material and the the range of potential questions that will come up. And if you slant towards easy questions, then you are are base you are saying quizzers that are expecting a range of them will do worse. You you have decided that those quizzers will do worse, and I don't think a question writer should be deciding that at all. I totally agree. I, I think the best question set is the one that has the widest range of easy to hard uh, because, and, and I would go so far as to say, I mean, I, I, I'm not against the idea of having a junior quizzing question set in certain cases. Right. But 
by and large, I'm generally against the idea because I think that's why you have a wide range. You have situations at, say, a district level where you've got certain quizzers who could very easily jump on a simple interrogative question and they will choose to sit to allow some of the the, the more rookie uh, or inexperienced quizzers to pick up that question, knowing that they're going to grab a quote or a finish the verse or something that's harder, or they're going to pick up a, a really complicated situation question or a long quoted uh, situation question or something like that a little bit later on because they have the confidence that they'll be able to do so and they want to maximize the number of correct questions for their entire team. I, I think that's why you have a wide range. The, this idea of, of saying like, and, and and that's even at the district level, right? When you get to internationals, the idea of having an easier set makes absolutely no sense. If anything, you actually want, like, and I'm not advocating for this at all, right? But if anything, I think you actually want to have a universally harder question set at IBQ. But I, I wouldn't even be advocating for that. I think I think really, in every case, it is best to write the question that the material wants to have written. It's sort of like, I, I see question writers as not so much writers, but as sculptors. A sculptor doesn't create a statue from a block of marble. They chip away from a block of marble to expose the statue that was already there the entire time, right? In, in much the same way, I think a question writer is not crafting a question from nothingness, they're deleting parts of a verse or parts of multiple verses to then ultimately expose the question that was there the entire time. And so when you have that as a mindset and you're going through and writing, uh, sculpting questions, you what you write from a verse or a set of verses is entirely based on what's in those verses, not based on like, ooh, I I don't have enough multiple answers. I need to find a multiple answer or uh, I've written too many multiple answers. So even though there's a great multiple answer here, I'm going to skip it, right? That's just silly. Absolutely. Like I've heard of um, question writers being told like you should have a consistent number of questions like per verse or per chapter or something which is completely ignoring that verses have different character and word counts and um, unique word mixes and all manner of things that are going to like the material could dictate that nine interrogatives be written from one verse and six chapter verse references from the next and not um, four and three from each, you know, or something more quote unquote consistent. And we're just looking at the material and saying like, what question types best test this? Like when I write questions, I don't, I'm not looking like, oh, um, this one is unique on the fifth word, so I don't want to write it. Like, I'm not even thinking about that. I'm just writing questions. Like, I, I actually will go through and just write questions that make, um, that flow to me. And I will later go go in and say like, oh, this one actually has two answers, so it's a multiple answer. This one, oh, this one needs to be a chapter reference. And I'm, I'm really assigning the type after the fact. I'm not trying to write a specific type up front. Or I'm not trying to decide like, oh, this should have this level of uniqueness or be unique this fast to write it. Because the second you try to do one thing over the other, you are you are influencing who scores well, um, which I don't think you should be doing at all. Quizzers should expect um, a random selection of verses 
or of quiz questions that test the material. And they should not, like, I mean, there have been cases in the past where Quizzers Internationals knew, like, once you heard the second W interrogative, there was not going to be another one. And, I mean, that that was quickly fixed, but that's, like, an extreme example of something that Quizzers could game. There were years where Quizzers knew, like, everything was going to be key by the second syllable. So I'm going to just go crazy. And... Those sorts of thing, those sorts of realities shouldn't exist. They shouldn't be gameable by the quizzers. We should be rewarding quizzers who study really well, but then apply, like execute it in a consistent manner and not in a gamed manner because of um, biases that the question writers took. Yeah, totally agreed. Well, let's do the last one you got here uh, on question writing, and then we'll uh, wrap up the show. Sure. So the last one is jump marks. So thankfully, this is n- not something that I have ever had to write. But jump marks are the point in the question that the material is unique. Um, and I mean, I think that they are completely unhelpful, but I also think that they are um, negative or hurtful in a few ways. One is just extra work. If you're writing questions and have to put in jump marks, if you're editing and have to look at jump marks, and there were years that I would... I don't want to be too specific, but I would do stuff with question sets from different districts, and some of them had jump marks and some of them didn't. That's extra work by me. There are definitely software ways that you can strip them out fairly quickly, but that involves work. But at the end of the day, no question writer should be doing stuff based on the jump mark. If you're writing it, this kind of goes back towards the slanting towards writing easier questions. If you see that on this question, the jump mark is after the fourth word, and you decide to then delete it or not write it, that's poor. Um, if you're a quiz master and you see that, oh, this question isn't unique until the sixth syllable, so I'm going to read it a little bit faster, that's like awful. And so I, I think the jump mark serves no purpose. It's extra work at every level, and it encourages poor practices because every quiz master, myself included, wants the quizzer to get it right. And so you kind of subconsciously will read something faster if you know it's not unique. But that shouldn't be information that you know, and you definitely should fight against doing that. Everything that you do in your reading consistency and stopping pace should be completely consistent. Um, And I just, I think there's so many poor practices. I don't know what use jump marks provide. I mean, I know that, I mean, I guess going back to our, was, did you call it a question difficulty synod or summit that we had in Port Orchard Griffin? Yeah, it was the great ecumenical uh, conference of Scott, Jeremy and Griffin to determine the theological importance of question difficulty scoring. Yeah. So for, for a long time, I was in favor of kind of wanting each quiz as a unit to be similarly difficult to any other quiz. So that because not every team quizzes in every time slot and I would hate for one team to like get a crazy difficult question set and then in the next time slot different teams get a crazy easy question set. Well, we talked it out at that summit of Port Orchard and just like realized how many problems there are at trying to a assign question difficulty to each question, but then trying to control it or normalize it at a quiz level. Um, when so many other variables exist, like the quiz master, your opponents. Um, and one of the biggest ones that we hadn't, that we kind of came to realize was at what point in the quiz specific question types arise. Like those variables exist in every quiz and probably contribute more to some notion of difficulty than the than any absolute 
difficulty level of each question. Not to not to forget that for each question type, a lot of the difficulty level is bound up in how fast you jump on it and not something inherent to the question. Um, so, I mean, all that to say, I can I know that there was software at one point that would kind of look at the jump marks and aim to have quizzes that were um, similarly difficult as based on the jump marks to other quizzes, which is something that I did myself, right? Um, but I think we've realized that that is not useful. And so that might be the only use that I can fathom for jump marks. Um, and it's kind of been debunked or moved past. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. I think there's there's no good that can come from jump marks. There is potential bad that can come from jump marks. And I think the potential bad is not a horrendous bad, but it is nevertheless a bad. And it's very difficult with jump marks there to completely delete the potential bad, um, even though it is, a, from my opinion, a mild bad. So yeah, I, I think jump marks serve no purpose other than to provide extra work for people and to cause people to potentially do bad things. Absolutely. So I think in a lot of areas of quizzing, and this absolutely applies to Griffin and I, you can end up in an echo chamber where everyone you talk with has the exact same thoughts as you. And so everything that you've always done, you will continue to do because it's validated. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Um, but I think it's useful to try to like explore different points of view. So like on this one for jump marks, it would be interesting to have feedback from quizzers who are like, have never heard of the notion of a jump mark and um, like maybe similarly to us see no useful point to them for question writers, editors, those generating question sets or officials. Um, and it would also be useful if some quizzers were like, Hey, this is actually kind of useful for this reason that maybe we have never thought of or coaches for that matter, or other quiz masters from other districts. I mean, I, maybe there is some kind of value to seeing the jump marks in the question set as a coach in a practice. I, I don't, I don't know if that's true. I mean, to me, it seems much more useful to understand, like, what are the unique words? What are chapter key? What are the key phrases? That kind of thing. Uh, but maybe there's some value to seeing the jump marks when you don't have that um, as a yeah. coach in a practice. But I, I mean, it's and, and certainly I mean, really, the, the thing that I really want to hear from is if any quiz master is like, no, I think jump marks are good for meets. And here's why I really want to hear that, because I can't for the life of me think of any good reason why they are there for me. Yeah. Now as a quizzer, there is something kind of similar that was invaluable to me. And I, I termed it common syllables. So jump marks are the designation of where a question is unique, taking into account the entire material, right? So if a question starts, um, the woman who, um, and that occurs three places, then I think the jump mark would occur after that who kind of signifying that it's the next word that um, makes it unique based on the material. Well, what I would do as a quizzer is within each question type, I would label the number of common syllables. So I'd sort it out alphabetically and say like, oh, for this question type, um, it starts with an A and there are 20 other questions that start with an A. So it, it gets a one because it's unique on the second syllable. Um, but to me, I was always comparing it to written questions of this type and not to the material because I only cared about figuring out where I should jump for a question type. So 
labeling a jump mark based on the material to me is very useless because I mean, and this is why I think studying just like a unique word list or a key, a unique phrase list can similarly be unhelpful because maybe half of unique words and unique phrases will not occur near the beginning of a question. And that's why I just, I would write questions and then study the list of questions that I had written because I knew that like I had decided that a question could start this way. Whereas there are tons of unique words that end a verse and so would not be the first word in question or maybe couldn't even be the second word after an interrogative word. And I think that sort of contextual knowledge of the question set or possible written questions of this question type is very useful in a studying sense. Um, but even that would not be useful in a quiz mastering sense because you should not care how fast or how slow a question becomes unique to the quizzer. All right. Yes, indeed. Well, and on that bombshell, we should close things. Went a little bit long, but that's cool. And we'll save our other umbrage things for the next episode. If you disagree with anything that we have said, or if you agree, but you have a differing umbrage level for anything that we have said, we would like to hear from you. We would like to receive your critical feedback, uh, as it were, on any things that uh, any any topic we've discussed or any topic that we have brushed over. So please email us if you would at iq at cbqz.org. And you can follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter address is inside or at Inside Quizzing on Twitter. And of course, you can chat with us in near real time most days on the Bible Quizzing Slack forum. You just have to join the forum at pnwquizzing.org slash Slack and then venture into the inside dash quizzing channel. And we are there to answer your questions in near real time. And with all that said, I will thank you all for listening and thank you, Scott. Yeah. And when you mentioned the near real time chatting in Slack, I think the fact that not all of us live in the same time zone, we don't have to get into which time zone is best or not, but between people like you and Jeremy or Alan and Zach and myself, we do live in different time zones. So um, it helps the almost real-time nature of chat within Slack if people have questions or things that they want to talk about. Uh, but thanks for listening to the podcast, everybody. Mm-hmm.